This being the first Sunday night of the month, uh, we do what we call questions and answers. And I'm going to deal with just one question tonight, though I have some uh, that I still haven't dealt with that others have sent in. Uh, but I just take them in the order that I get them. And this is going to uh, more than likely take up the length of our time this evening. Um, but just I'll just read to you what was given to me uh, rather than try to paraphrase it. It's kind of a long, uh, lengthy thing, but it says, uh, In the book Muscle and Shovel, on page 258, Michael Shank, a Church of Christ preacher, teaches that an elder is supposed to have a, a plurality of believing children. Is my, Michael Shank correct? If Michael Shank is wrong, should our congregation reach out to him and his church and teach them a more correct way? Related to this question, we often say, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent, and not to add or take away from what the Bible teaches. Yet you'll hear differences in belief, like with Michael Shank or with alcohol, or whether one drink is one drink drunk, cigarette being a sin because the body is the temple, etc. The Bible teaches we should be of the same mind and judgment. Is this talking about the church local or only, only or the church universal? If the church universal is supposed to be of the same mind and judgment with Michael Shank's church plurality of believing children or another church, one believing child is okay, be in danger of hell because they have different judgments. Or a person who believes any alcohol at all is sinful as opposed to a person who believes not, giving, not being given too much is okay. Is one of the two people in danger of hell uh, for not being of the same mind and judgment? Would it not have to be the case that one group or one person had to be guilty or of speaking where the Bible doesn't speak or being silent where the Bible is silent, adding to or taking away from the Word of God? The idea of speaking where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent, of course, is a biblical doctrine uh, because the Bible teaches this particular principle, but the idea of speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent is something that came from the Restoration Movement. It specifically came from uh, Alexander Campbell and his father, Thomas Campbell. And the point they were trying to make, of course, is that we need to have scriptural authority for everything that we do. But another slogan that came out of this particular uh, time period during the time of the Campbells and time of when the Restoration Movement began uh, was this particular statement. It went like this. In matters of faith, unity. In matters of opinion, liberty. And in all things, love. Now, once again, the Bible teaches that particular idea uh, throughout it, but that is not a verse you can turn to in the same way you can't turn to a verse in the Bible that says, speak where the Bible speaks and be silent where the Bible is silent. But the principle behind it is very important. What the Campbells wanted us to understand and what we appreciate the Bible teaching is simply this, that in order for us to have faith, the right kind of faith, and the church to be what it needs to be, there needs to be unity. We need to agree on matters of faith. In the area, as far as matters of opinion, there needs to be liberty or freedom. In other words, we have the freedom to disagree. But behind it all, there needs to be love. In all things, there needs to be love. In other words, there doesn't need to be contention in any of these areas. Now, obviously, as we go through God's Word, there are some things that are matters of faith. 
They are identifying marks that make us the New Testament church, and there cannot be any difference of opinion on this because when there is a difference of opinion, it causes us to cease to be the New Testament church. For example, in Mark 16, 16, Jesus very clearly says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Folks, we can talk about that till we're blue in the face, and that's, there's just no wiggle room in that. That's one of the identifying marks of the New Testament church. We know from looking at the New Testament church that they baptized for the remission of sins, that a person wasn't saved until they were baptized. And if somebody teaches something other than that, then they are teaching something that is false. And it's one of the, like I said, it's one of the identifying marks of the New Testament church. A church can call itself a New Testament church. It can refer to itself as the Church of Christ. But if it doesn't believe that baptism is necessary for salvation, regardless of what they call themselves, they cease to believe to be the New Testament church because they no longer can identify with the church that we read about in the New Testament who, of course, believed that a person needed to be baptized in order to be saved. And there are several other examples we could pull into that uh, particular idea. But there's also areas that we will call in the area of of opinions or areas of differences because the Bible is not exactly clear on certain things. Um, For example, I remember growing up that um, two very well-known preachers, very two preachers that uh, were very educated, two preachers who were very respected, uh, two preachers that uh, people wanted to hear what their opinions were on things, uh, that regularly, when I was a student at Free Hardeman University, would get up every single lectureship and debate whether or not the Holy Spirit dwelt in us only through the Word or whether or not the Holy Spirit dwelled within us internally. Uh, Brother Guy in Woods believed that the Word uh, or that the Holy Spirit only dwelt with us through the Word and Gus Nichols, who was once again also a very fine gospel preacher, well-respected, well-educated, believed that there was a special indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, these two men can't both be right. One of them had to be wrong, but yet both of them were still held in in very high esteem among the church. There was no disfellowshipping along. They debated the issue, like I said, almost every year, but nobody ever came to a conclusion because there's some things you can't simply come to a conclusion on. And we had to make up our own minds whether or not we were going to hold to one view or the other view. But the thing about it is it was not something that was a mark of identifying the church because the Bible wasn't particularly clear on it. When it comes to the idea of the plurality of children in the eldership, there's once again the same type of situation going on. It all hinges on what the Greek word there is in the particular passages that talk about uh, children, elders having children there in Titus and also in 1 Timothy. There's the Greek word technon. And the Greek word technon there in that particular passage can be translated in two different ways. Um, It all depends on who you're going to follow and who you're going to argue with. You can pick up articles that say one thing, and you can pick up another article that says the other thing. You can pick up a commentary that'll say one thing, you pick up another commentary that's one way. It all hinges on that Greek word technon, which is the plural word, word for children. So somebody can say, well, it says children, plural, therefore it must be a plurality of children. But in the Greek uh, syntax, it also can be used this way in the same way that we use it 
uh, today when we talk to someone. For example, I could go up to, uh, say, Grady, and say, Grady, do you have any children? Well, Grady would answer yes. Why? Because he does. He has children. He has several children. But I could go to someone else in the congregation, um, just picking off the top of my head, I see Eliza there. Eliza, do you have any children? She would say, yes, I have children, but she only has one. It would not be proper to say, do you have any childs? That's not the way that we use the, the grammar. But the answer to the question is both the same, children and child. Um, can't think of the passage right off the top of my head, but um, Paul talks about having children or having wi uh, widows who are widows indeed, and if they're widows indeed, that means they do not have any children who can take care of them. Well, once again, if they have just one child, then that one child has a responsibility to take care of that widow. It doesn't mean that that widow has to have two children before she qualifies not being a, a widow indeed. A point in that is, depending on how you look at the Greek syntax there, that there are those who hold firm that means it has to be two children. Whereas others who hold fast, that it can be one or two because it both fits the Greek grammar in that particular text. And you'll find just as many on one side of the picture as you do on the other side of the picture. In fact, in this congregation, you'll find some that hold one view on the other and hold view in, uh, the view of the other. And so my point is that there are some things that are not um, identifying marks of the church that we have to use our own best judgment on. Uh, for example, uh, since we're talking about eldership, um, I was in a uh, preacher's meeting a couple years ago, and we had a discussion, and this was a luncheon, it's something we had every month, and we, we were having a discussion about what, what, what happens when a believing child uh, leaves the church. All through his life, he was a member of the church, and he was a faithful member of the church, and this man was qualified as an elder because that person was a, a faith, that son or daughter was a faithful member of the church. But lo and behold, several years after they leave home, they quit becoming faithful. Does that disqualify that person from being an elder anymore? I bring that up because in our discussion, we probably had maybe 20 or 25 different preachers in that room. The room was almost divided half and half about whether or not that pre elder needed to resign. Once again, there's areas there where we have to use our own best judgment and we have to decide, but they're not matters of faith that causes us to say, well, that person needs to be corrected because we just simply don't know. Same way when a wife dies, since we're talking about elders. Uh, the Bible is very clear that the person needs to be a man and he has to be a husband of one wife. Well, how do you define the husband of, of one wife? Uh, there are those in our brotherhood who believe that once a uh, uh, an elder gets married, even if his wife died or his wife um, uh, uh, left him and, and uh, he was divorced for scriptural reasons, that he never could ever be an elder again, even if he marries a very faithful Christian because it says one wife. There's some who believe that if an elder has faithfully served as an elder up to the time he was about 70 and still going strong, but his wife dies, that disqualifies him as being an elder anymore. And there's others who hold the other view. A point is, in some of these areas, that there is just not enough clear, direct commands in God's Word that they fall into the realm of, you know, you, 
decide what you're going to decide, and then I'll decide what I'm going to decide. But in matters of opinion, there is not only liberty, but in all things there's going to be love. Now, with that being said, what about this idea of trying to um, change the church universal as far as making sure that they would hold to a view that it could be one child or two child, uh, two children with the eldership. Well, the thing we need to make sure that we understand and appreciate is something that's called congregational autonomy. Now, congregational autonomy is a word that we're not too familiar with unless you have a background in, in, in the church and have done some study on it. Uh, autonomy is not a word that we use very often, but the word autonomy is derived from two Greek words, uh, the word that means auto and the word that means uh, nami, autonomy. It literally means self-rule. Every congregation is supposed to be self-governing or self-rule. Um, hence, when we talk about congregational autonomy, we're expressing that the idea that each congregation is self-governed and independent of every other congregation. Okay, Remember that. That's very important. Now, we understand and appreciate that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. The New Testament is our final law book, if you will. But yet, at the same time, the autonomy of the local church simply means that each local church reserves the right to make decisions as to what expediencies it will employ in executing God's law. A good example of this is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, a verse you're very familiar with. It simply states, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as a matter of some is, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. Now, folks, there is a direct command here in that passage. And I think you know what it is. The direct command is not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together. There's the direct command. But here's where the local church comes involved. What exactly does that mean when it comes to the local congregation? Well, first of all, it's the silly things that people might not think about, but every local church has the right to decide what time, there's, what time their worship service is going to be. Another church can't tell me because we have worship service at 10 or Bible class at 10 and worship service at 11 instead of at 8 and 9 that somehow or another I'm unscriptural. We're still doing what the command carried out. Uh, as far as uh, if whether or not we have a Sunday night service or not, I know it's our tradition in churches of Christ to have a Sunday night service and, and people might look at us with a skunk eye if we don't have a Sunday night service. But yet, that has nothing to do with this particular command about forsaking the assembly. A local church has the right to either have a Sunday morning and then no Sunday night service or have no Sunday morning service and have just a Sunday night service. The local church has that ability. But here's another way I want you to think about it. Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, what does that mean? I know churches that would, would, will, would withdraw from someone because they don't come to church on Sunday night or because somebody doesn't show up for Bible class. There's other churches who say, well, you know, as long as you're here at least once a day, well, you've, you've got it covered, you've carried out the command. Now, all that's being kind of silly, but I'm trying to make you understand and appreciate the fact that sometimes there's the command, but the local church decides how that command's going to be carried out as far as the expediency of the local church. 
In other words, uh, this is how congregational autonomy works. Each local church has the right to decide what time it's going to meet, how many times within the week, who is going to do the preaching, and how many minutes or hours that preaching might last. Yet there's the command not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Now, let me say a little bit more about congregational autonomy, and I'll show you where I'm taking this. After Paul and Barnabas had preached and established churches in several cities on their first journey, they came back to appoint elders for each of these churches, Acts 14 and verse 23. And the reason why they did this is because they wanted to establish congregational autonomy. They wanted to make sure that each one of these local churches were independent of the other local churches. Um, one way, it showed the independence of the local church, but also it showed the equality of all the different churches. Now, keep in mind that when Paul and Barnabas went on their missionary journey, they were sent out by a local church, the church at Antioch. That was their supporting church. That's the one that paid them. That's the one that sent them to, to set up these particular churches. But having established the church, having accomplished their task, they returned and gave report to that same local church but that local church never oversaw or ruled the local churches in spite of the fact that it was Antioch that was responsible for sending out the preachers in the first place and established that church. In the New Testament, there is nothing like a mother church or a supervising congregation. Each local church is independent and all the congregations are on the same footing, equal before God in spite of size and location. Now, I say all that to say this. The elders of this particular congregation are responsible for what happens within this congregation. What happens at the Charlotte Avenue Church of Christ or at the Gold Hill Road Church of Christ, that's the responsibility of those particular elders. And if the elders of that particular church, after they have met and decided that they were not going to appoint elders unless they have a plurality of children, then that's their thing. If a congregation uh, at another place decides we'll work, we will appoint elders even if the elder only has one child. That's their thing. I have no right to say you can't do that and you have no right to tell me I can't do that. Because when you do, then you are violating the idea of what the local congregation has to do. Um, now, if a church, of course... Uh, starts violating those identifying marks that take place as far as the Lord's church is concerned, then the eldership here would have a, a responsibility to make sure that we warn the congregation here that there's a church in town that says it's a church of Christ, but it's not practicing New Testament Christianity. Maybe there's changes made in, el in the eldership that aren't scriptural. Maybe there's changes in uh, who's doing the preaching as far as men and women. Maybe there's something changed in the worship. And we have a, a duty as the eldership here to protect the flock and make sure they know that. And we may write that church and say, hey, we wish you wouldn't do this. And here's the reason why from God's word. Um, but yet at the same time, I can't make that church do anything other than that what that church is going to do. Uh, there's the area of them doing the things that are in the matter of their own liberty, but then there's also those things that are in the matter of violating the Word of God. Now, take, for example, Michael Shank. Uh, I could write Michael Shank. The church here could even send him a letter and say, you know, the eldership here has talked, and we, through our study of God's Word, we think you're wrong about the plurality of elders. 
Well, we could write him, but that would be the end of it. It would be up to him to decide what he's going to do. But let's say he did something that was very obvious. Say Michael Shank wrote a book, uh, followed up his uh, muscle and shovel with a book entitled, There's No Point in Getting Baptized Because All You're Doing Is Getting Wet. Now, once again, the church here could say, Michael, we're going to write you a letter, and we're going to tell you how you're teaching false doctrine. And we may even tell the church here, because as the eldership here, we may say, well, we prefer you not to use Michael Shank's book anymore. And we could do all that, but still Michael Shank has the right to do whatever he's going to do. The point is that if he was a member of this church, we could do something about it in a more definitive way. We could withdraw from him. We could talk to him more about it. We could say, well, you're not going to participate in the worship service any longer until you change your view on this. But he's not a member of this congregation. And therefore, I can, we can send him letters. We could uh, ask to study with him. But as far as having any type of discipline or doing anything with any authority, we just simply do not have that authority. And therefore... Uh, we can, as a local uh, eldership, can, uh, can warn other members about certain situations in other churches and what other people may be writing or saying and whatnot, uh, but that's as far as it, far as it goes. Uh, the bottom line, as we mentioned earlier, that in matters of faith, we need to have unity. In matters of opinion, we need to have liberty, but in all things, we need to have love. Uh, love is the key to it all. Even if we see that our brother maybe is wrong in something or maybe in one of those areas where we may disagree that the Bible is not clear cut on, still there's a matter of love and not getting angry with one another and basically saying that, that I know you feel this way and you know I feel this way, but we still can love one another and still be a part of the Lord's church. Uh, many years ago, a preacher friend of mine was preaching at a congregation and they were discussing the book of Judges, and he came to uh, that section in the book of Judges that deals with Jep- Jephthah's vow. And you remember that, how Jephthah made a vow that uh, the first thing that came to him, he would sacrifice it to the Lord. And lo and behold, if you remember the story, it was his daughter that came to him. And this preacher was uh, showing that there was two sides to the particular view about what did Jephthah actually do. Uh, He said there's one view that Jephthah actually sacrificed his daughter as a sacrifice to God. And then there's the other view that he put her her away and made her take a vow where she would never ever be with a man and she was held in seclusion for the rest of his life, rest of her life. And you look at that particular text, you can study the Hebrew, both ways could happen. Well, he made that point in class and class was over and he was walking out in the foyer a man literally came up to him, grabbed him by the collar, stuck his hand up underneath his chin, and jammed him against the wall and said, you'll never teach that false doctrine here. That really happened. Now, that's not, <laughs> that's not all things in love, especially in a thing where the Bible is not clear cut, that there could be some different opinions, different views on that particular idea. And so I think that's the important thing to understand, that in the Bible... There are some things that the Bible is very clear that are identifying marks of the New Testament, uh, the New Testament church. When a church quits practicing those things, whether it be worship, whether it be salvation, whether it be church government, uh, they cease to be that New Testament church. They simply become another denomination among denominations. They can call themselves the New Testament church. They can even go by the church of Christ, but they quit being that thing. 
But also you need to understand that there are some areas in the Bible that that aren't as clear-cut, and that comes down to the local congregation and comes down to the local uh, eldership who has the responsibility to make sure that the, the, the flock is protected and to make sure that they as a church do what they feel is best and how they look at a particular passage, what they feel it may be best. But that's as far as it goes. We can't tell another church because they hold a different view on, say, the plurality of elders uh, that uh, we aren't going to have anything to do with you anymore because you don't hold the exact same view I do on this particular thing. Now, once again, let me emphasize, if it was something that was of a matter of faith, as far as the New Testament church is concerned, I believe we can say to a congregation, hey, listen, we prefer our members not to visit with you anymore because you're teaching something that's contrary to God's word. But we have to respect congregational autonomy or the local church has the right to govern itself in the things that have matter of liberty. And therefore, we need, of course, always do that with the spirit of love. Um, Too many times in our brotherhood, there have been men who spend their entire life trying to find things that are wrong with other churches and find things wrong that that are wrong with other preachers. Uh, It's interesting, as conservative as my father is, and well known in the brotherhood, as being conservative. I can remember him being written up many times in, in some brotherhood papers because uh, he happened to speak at some place where they didn't think that was appropriate for him to speak because there was, kind of like Kevin Bacon, so many people removed that happened to be there that one time said something else somewhere else. You know, it gets to the point of silly when you're trying to be a heretic detector. Instead, you need to be emphasizing the spread of New Testament Christianity and those things that perhaps there is differing opinions on, such as Gus Nichols and Guy and Wood on the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Instead, we can agree to disagree because it really doesn't matter as far as salvation is concerned, but yet at the same time, we're going to love one another and try to grow the church together. So tonight, I hope that answers that particular question. That we do need to speak where the Bible speaks, but at the same time, in matters of faith, unity, in matters of opinion, liberty, but in all things, there needs to be love. And so tonight, we're going to extend the invitation to you because the invitation is a New Testament invitation. If you're here and you're not a Christian, uh, we would love to sit down and talk to you about what the New Testament says about becoming a New Testament Christian and being added to the New Testament church. Also, if you're here and you're a New Testament Christian, but for some reason there's something in your life that needs to be corrected, I remind you once again, if it's something of a private nature, then it needs to be taken care of privately. Or if it's something of a public nature, perhaps it needs to be taken care of publicly. But 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 reminds us that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But whatever your need this evening, won't you come as together we stand and sing?